Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, we talk to the brands helping one man swim the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The, the Vortex Swim, Ben, Paul, the crew, this is a collection of you know, really extraordinary individuals, human beings, that are trying to put a spotlight on something that is, is a pretty big crisis for the world. We learn whether climate and environmental documentaries can drive positive change rather than set the alarm bells ringing again. There's a lot of um, docu- or documentaries out there at the minute that focus on the doom and gloom. And I think we've all had enough of the doom and gloom, you know, but it's not the way to actually motivate people and get people to action or take part or want to be a part of something. And we see how one company has worked to develop a leading edge approach to the sustainable development goals. We began thinking about science and the underpinning of the SDGs. How ready was science to help and inform knowledge and debate on the SDGs? So, hello and welcome back. You're listening to Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, who is all alone on this sunny Friday on the 28th of June. I'm going to be honest, my involvement in this podcast episode uh, will be rather minimal, and that's deliberate. Last night, the ED team was in London for the AOP Digital Publishing Awards and picked up the win in the small digital publisher category. So congratulations to us. But as a result of that, and also as a result of stumbling through my door at 3am this morning, I think it's best if we kind of skip the pleasantries and go straight into the first of our free interviews for this episode. A few weeks ago, the Icebreaker brand invited me along to a special London event. The company is owned by VF Corp, and it was showcasing their new activism-led campaign. While I did have to take part in a 7k run around the capital with a load of ultra-marathon runners, I did get some more relaxed time to speak to the Icebreaker team and that of the Vortex Swim project to discuss how the companies are working to raise awareness from the tons of plastic floating in the ocean, otherwise known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So enjoy this interview with Paul LeCompte from the Vortex Swim crew, Carla Murphy, the Chief Brand and Product Officer, um, and Alistair Smith, the Head of Product Design. Both of those two are from Icebreaker. And then join me for part two, where Sarah is on hand to discuss the role of climate and sustainability awareness documentaries to see just how impactful they can be. On World Oceans Day, Ben LeCompte will jump into the water and make his way from Hawaii to California through what is known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, uh, following a 2018 expedition, um, a world record attempt to swim across that Pacific Ocean. Ben is now focusing his attention on um, the state of the oceans and helping citizens and consumers alike realise the threat and the issue of plastic pollution. Um, and that's why on World Oceans Day, Vortex Swim was launched, which is an online pledge to encourage followers to cut out single-use plastic from their daily lives. To mark that occasion, I am now sitting with uh, three people that uh, have different kind of levels of involvement with that project. So I have Carla Murphy, the Chief Brand and Product Officer at fashion brand Icebreaker, and also Alistair Smith, Head of Product Design at Icebreaker, newly um, appointed, I may add, as well, and Paul LeCompte, who is a project crew member from Vortex Swim, and if I'm correct, nephew of Ben, who's actually doing the swim. Yeah, correct, yeah. So it's an interesting group of people around the table, and it'd be good just to get a bit of an insight into the purpose of Vortex Swim. I touched on it very kind of briefly, but... Um, 
why would um, anyone in their right mind decide to try and swim the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? I suppose is a good place to start. That's a very good question. Like, why would anyone swim in the open ocean? Uh, I don't really know why my uncle wants to do that. It's a bit of a crazy passion. Uh, it's part of his identity. It's something he really feel fulfilled with. But he's always tried to link his passion with a message to try and use his swim to create a platform for something that is bigger than him. And uh, you mentioned the previous expedition we did from Japan to Hawaii. Uh, for us, it was shocking uh, to see the extent of plastic pollution. We weren't uh, expected to find that much on our way. So it became really something that overcame the swim itself. For Ben now, it's very clear. He wants to use his swim uh, to be a voice for our ocean and put the spotlight on, on this issue. So that's the starting point of the Vortex Swim. And so, so what's the, uh, you mentioned the starting point, what's the end goal of Vortex Swim? Is it, is it just an awareness campaign? Is there going to be some tangible actions attached to it as well? Yeah, so the Vortex Swim is first and foremost an exploration. So the goal for us is to have bands swimming from debris to debris, and the scientists will guide us with maps and uh, satellite imagery to know where the debris are concentrated, and then we'll be there and swim. Uh, it will be the first man to swim in this area. So this area is the highest concentration of plastic in the world, and it's very important for scientists to understand a bit better uh, what plastic is there and how it moves and where it comes from. So on top of Ben's crazy swim, we're going to also uh, collect data on floating debris, microplastic, microfiber, and the idea is to come back with the first trans-specific data set on plastic pollution. Great stuff. And when you visualize plastics in the ocean, let's stop. <clears throat> and when you visualize plastics in the ocean, you, you, your mind tends to race to plastic bottles or anything in the kind of the Blue Planet series that was there, the kind of six pack rings around the turtle's neck, so to speak. So it seems uh, quite interesting to bring Icebreaker into this conversation. So for, for listeners unaware, Icebreaker is a kind of ethical, sustainable fashion brand uh, based in New Zealand. It's now owned by VF Corp, which also owns uh, brands like the North Face and, and Timberland is a bit of a kind of sustainable um, leader in its own right. So, um, Carla and Alistair, thank you again so much for um, agreeing to this chat. What, where, where does Icebreaker's involvement come into this then? Yeah, well, for almost 25 years, Icebreaker's been providing natural alternative apparel um, to the consumer. And that's based on a very simple set of beliefs that nature has the answers. Um, nature to us is our hero. It's where we get our inspiration. And our, our founder, Jeremy Moon, was very, very focused um, at the outset of providing um, an alternative to wearing synthetic essentially plastic-based um, gear when you're in the outdoors because to him it's ironic that you cover yourself in something that is plastic-based to go out into what is the natural world. So his belief is really, um, I guess, stayed with us. Um, he's still involved in the brand. And today we are always looking for ways to bring that belief set and that conversation to the consumer in a way that is, is more powerful and relevant to them. Um, the, the Vortex Swim, Ben, Paul, the crew, this is really, um, this is a collection of you know, really extraordinary individuals, human beings, that are trying to put a spotlight on something that is, is a pretty big crisis for the world. But the, the brands and businesses really need to try and find a way to reframe that story, to tell it differently, to get people to 
actually want to be interested and want to be um, you know, explore and understand more. So, so why, I guess, why we're involved is these are incredible individuals that are connected to nature as much as Icebreaker is connected to nature. And we, we share a, a value set, um, aligned beliefs that um, together we've, we've got to do as much as we can, as little or as much as we can, to try and reduce our reliance on petrochemicals and synthetics. And, um... Uh, so obviously new to uh, the job, was that a big kind of um, appeal to you when, when you decided to take up the role of head of product design at Iceberg? Was, was sustainability always been a kind of um, passion of yours and this is a good chance to actually explore it? Or? I've, always, <coughs> I've always loved uh, working with natural materials. I think it's, um, it's one of the joys of products is uh, the sort of beauty and, and intrinsic performance that natural materials have. and. Um, you know, many brands spend a lot of time, energy trying to make synthetics uh, do something similar to what natural fibers like merino can do by themselves. Um, and and so yeah, I think that the appeal for me is that there's there's very 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 few brands in the world. I would say no brand in the world that that goes to the extent that Icebreaker does to. Um, sort of forge relationships and take responsibility for where it where its materials come from um, so that's a huge appeal for me and I think there's there's a huge uh, potential with the the range to uh, spread that message and and on top of that you know just also that the the material works so so well for such a wide range of purposes and I think probably people still don't that's not a message that's widely understood I think if you were to ask the majority of people, you know, what's their t-shirt made of or what's their jumper made of, I think probably people are still not that aware of what they're wearing and certainly not that aware of the um, sort of damage that uh, plastics getting out into the ecosystem mm. um, and can have on our environment. So, you know, appeals from lots of different, um, through lots of different lenses, I guess. Interesting time to be probably a product designer in that sense as well because, like I said, more people are becoming aware of the, the impact that the stuff that they wear has, so um, a chance to be a bit innovative as well, which is probably quite nice. And we, we've touched upon the, the impact of storytelling a bit already, both Alistair and Carla <clears throat> have mentioned it, and I was at the, um, I was at the event a uh, couple of weeks ago where you, um, you kind of launched the Particles of Vortex Swim, there was the, um, the Merino teaser there, I had to do a, a four and a half mile run around central London um, in, rather, in better weather than it is now in fairness, so I can't complain too much. Um, and there was a lot of kind of comms attached to that, we watched the, we watched the video um, kind of as an awareness campaign which had some science in it but also some just emotive storytelling. Are we seeing the, the, a kind of new era where brands now can launch these type of video comms and it's not just seen as kind of PR aspects, there is actual intrinsic purpose behind it. We're, we're seeing it a lot, basically, you know, consumers are just becoming more interested in these kind of docu-series, you mentioned Blue Planet already, um, but there's, there's a host of um, documentaries out there right now that basically kind of point out uh, how big a mess the planet's in. So it's a kind of job of, of brands and an organisation like Water Swim to show the solutions. Do, do you see this becoming a, a really kind of key engagement metric in the future? Yeah, I think there's probably two, um, two sides to that. I think it's the, the format of communications is constantly evolving. Um, and I think over the last 
five, maybe ten years, we've we've seen the rise of, as you mentioned, documentaries. We've seen more community-based learning programs. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Do Lectures and the TED Talks, and and these have become probably a little bit more uh, normalised in recent years of ways to learn where they're coming from very inspiring individuals that are also humans. Um, with the Blue Planet, it actually sheds you know, a, a much greater view on. So I think format and topic and subject are driving conversations. Then the delivery and the science, but with also the ability to drive emotion, understanding and make it digestible it is kind of coming into play. So I think we really are at a... At a I wouldn't say a new a new time. I think everything is constantly evolving, but what we are doing in brands is being challenged by what the consumer, what the customer wants, and they are wanting more insight. They're wanting more transparency, and actually, they're just seeking knowledge. So it's a really, really fabulous time to be in in a brand, to be in a position of where we can can share what we know, and I think that. Storytelling is important, but it's got to have a purpose. Mm. And purpose-led brands um, are always trying to engage, but also seed some messages. And I think that's really important. Seeding messages to allow people to pick up on is important versus kind of forcing our point of view, um, you know, maybe down their throats, because that's where we know people switch off. So I think there's just a huge, huge, I think Alistair said it earlier um, today, even an obligation. Of, of brands now to create comms that is valuable, reusable, um, and got kind of more purpose, I'd say, than beautifully shot imagery, mm. which is still very important, by the way. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be there's got to be a balance. It's got to be a bit of nuanced messages as well. I mean, the UK is apparently a nation that's sick of experts, as the politicians would um, would say. But the the science coming out of these debates, especially around. Um, plastics and around the stately power industry, there's quite a lot for a consumer to absorb. So, um, Paul, I'd be interested in your thoughts, based on what you're going to find during the, uh, the the Great Pacific Garbage Patch Swim, how are you going to kind of use that data? Because theoretically you're going to pull all these different types of plastic pollutants and find out um, the, the makeup and the matrix of it, but then how do you share that in a way that people walking the streets can just understand and, and act upon? Yeah, and I like what Clara said about reframing the story. I think uh, when you Google ocean plastic, today it's very depressing and very overwhelming. So the whole point of this adventure is to, uh, to place the human at the middle of it and have been for the first time someone in the ocean experiencing uh, this, I think is a very important aspect. Yes, the science is very important us to understand more this issue and we have a big focus on life and how life is being affected by by this um, plastic uh, plague um, but also on that is how do you tell a story how do you really engage i think we need more science to understand the issue but we don't need more science to start a conversation and that's the whole point of this uh, expedition is to create an exciting and inspiring adventure and we do the same that icebreaker we want to create a community that has shared values and ultimately we want we have an idea of what the future should be and i think nature is not boring mm. and today especially when you see brand like icebreaker and the product they made out of is nature is beautiful and we want to do we want to do that open a window on this environment 
have people experiencing it, loving it. And when you love something, naturally you want to protect it. So science is one of the pieces, definitely not enough. You need to tell a story. See, I, I like the idea of community, and I, I agree with everything um, you said there, Paul. Um, but if you look at the fashion industry as a whole, it's, it's come under the spotlight quite rightly over the last 12 months. Um, well, even before that, but it's really kind of picked, whipped up a storm recently with um, some exposés into um, the, the practices, not just the throwaway culture of the fashion industry, but um, the ethics that are surrounding things like Rana Plaza and um, Syrian refugees and supply chains, which is a story for a, a different day. But you mentioned the, the collective around this ethical, sustainable fashion industry. There's a lot of work to get the rest of the industry on board. It's great having brands like Icebreaker and companies like VF Corp that are able to um, you know, offer these type of solutions to consumers. But to get the whole industry on board, it's going to require quite a dial shift. And I'll just be interested to see, and this might not be something Icebreaker is working on, but I'd like to get your, your views, your solid views on what you think can and should happen in the future to really start accelerating, to make sustainability not just um, a niche kind of offering in the fashion sector, but something that covers the whole of the sector. Well, wouldn't it be great if we weren't talking about sustainability because it just was? And I think that's the that's got to be the vision that the industry has got has got to move towards. Not all brands are like Icebreaker. You know, we are a fiber to finish goods model, so we have visibility over you know, almost seven stages of our supply chain, end to end, as well as traceability. And what that allows us to, I guess, impart and share with the industry is how we have done things, how we have built a business that is fully transparent and, and not perfect, still work to do, always communicating what we're working on. But I think it's brands, you know, we're inspired by the brands and it's brands like us that need to share what we're doing because for the broader industry that maybe are not there yet or brands that are, you know, and businesses in fashion that are looking at how can we get involved, what's that first step? I think there needs to be a, a, a collective first step for everybody where there's not almost the shame in the first step. If we're going to drive change, then it's going to come from brands and businesses all being at different stages of the process, but actually committing to change. And that's, that's something that I think that I'm very passionate about. It's something that I think um, brands need to be thinking about in the textile industry is no matter where they are in their current development, what is their roadmap for change? And those tiny steps that we're making will all drive and contribute to a better end state. I think we're very aware not every brand is like Icebreaker, but if our transparency report can, can put a spotlight on how maybe one or two things could be done differently, you know, you can start with packaging, you could start with um, you know, one tiny thing internally before you kind of make big bold statements. But I think really it needs to be on an agenda in the boardroom and be part of a business model, not a, um, a sustainability strategy. Alistair, would you agree with that? Completely, yeah. And I think the, um, Carla mentioned the other night at the, uh, the event that we did that um, you know, it's, it's in everyone's interest for more and more brands to be working on this. This is not something that just Iceberg is trying to own and um, I think it's in our interest and everyone else's interest that uh, more people are aware of it and even if it means that they end up buying not a product from us but another brand that's working really hard on, on you know, being more conscious of the environment and our impact on it, then that's a win-win for everyone. So I think that's a really good thing. You know, 
Um, again, just just awareness around the issue. You know, the the amount of synthetics used in in the clothing industry has increased something like three hundred percent, I think, since um, nineteen ninety two, and so it's 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 a drastic shift our reliance on these petrochemical based um, materials and. I think it's just not been a conversation that's that's been had, and so it's it's you know lots and lots of small some small steps in the right direction. I think is what's needed. Great stuff. Um, really exciting time for um for the fashion industry as a whole, especially for companies that have that brand purpose pretty much nailed down, like I think Icebreaker does. And I'm I'm wary that um it's an extremely extremely busy time for you all as well. Um, Carla and um, Alice, I think you're both off to <clears throat> back off to New Zealand, and Paul, you've also got to gear up for um, uh, the the Great Pacific Garbage Patch swim. Um, I wish I said I wish I could say I had something as epic lined up for for my near future as well, but I don't. I just got to get a train home. But um, guys, <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Carla, Alistair and Paul. The campaign features a lot of informative videos, uh, one of which is attached to the article accompanying this podcast episode, and it got the ED team thinking about the rise in video, TV and even film to raise awareness on climate change and sustainability. From Blue Planet to One Planet, environmental docuseries are certainly flavour of the year. At ED, we're all about empowering business to be more sustainable. So rather than speak to a maker of another doom and gloom series, illuminating as they always are, we instead sought to speak to an individual that is trying to use this format to showcase the tangible solutions on offer to some of the planet's biggest challenges. Up next is Sarah's chat with Charney Magri, the co-director and producer of Catwalk to Creation, a docuseries focusing on how the fashion sector can become more sustainable. So enjoy this in-depth chat with Charney and discover more about her personal purpose and then join us for the final part of this episode where we move away from video to focus on the scientific publishing company that has taken engagement with the SDGs to brand new heights. So it is unusually a sunny day for us here and I'm here with Sharni Magri who is the co-director of Catwalk to Creation, um, a short two-part, I think you call it a docu-series, um, um, made, by, made by Do Epic Good. So how are you doing today? Really good, thank you for having me here today. Um, yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, this is a two-part film, I think each part is about 15 minutes, um, discussing sustainable fashion from a viewpoint, I would say, of solutions rather than catastrophe, and following the journey of two garments um, using two different solutions and approaches to the fashion industry's environmental and human rights issues in different ways. Um, but could you give us a bit more in-depth summary for the film, uh, for those who haven't seen it? Yeah, sure. So... Catwalk to Creation is a docu-series. It's um, the reverse journey of two garments. Mm -hmm. The first one talks about um, natural and synthetic fibres, um, and then the second one talks about viscose and then goes into a next-gen solution. Mm -hmm. um, I came up with an idea... We came up with an idea with this. The idea came around about two years ago, um, and I approached my um, co-director, Ramsey Matran, with this idea, who brought it to life with me. Um, at the time, I'm a busy mum and I'm in the fashion industry um, and I'd been in the sustainable space for the sustainable space for quite some time. But I realised that 
the research that I was doing, the more research that I got into, the more convoluted the information was that I was finding out and right. the more confused I got. And I'm in the space. So yeah. I was thinking if I'm in the space, what happens to people who are not in the space who would like to understand it? Do they, do they tap in, get too confused and then walk away and leave it and then do nothing about it? Or do they continue on with their research? Mm-hmm. Realistically, I think most people either wouldn't look at it or if they do have a look at it and get very confused, they would walk away with it or walk away with the wrong messaging. So I decided from seeing that gap in the market, I decided it was time to actually do something about it. And content for me is one of the most powerful ways to speak to people, visual content. Mm. Um, So we came up with the idea of doing the docu-series, which we would actually um, do multiple um, episodes for. And the reason why we did um, short episodes, because they're about 15 minutes to 17 minutes long, was purely because of that. Because people just don't have time to sit down and carve out an evening for you know an hour, hour and a half. Or generally speaking, they, they wouldn't really have the time. Um, so this way, while it's, it's a bite-sized, palatable chunk of information that people can actually sit down and watch and get a taster for what's actually happening in the industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then something that stands out about this film, I thought, is the way that it's um, laid out. So a lot of films in this space, so the one that jumps to mind is The True Cost, but there are numerous books and films about out about this topic now, more coming out all the time, um, is that it goes in reverse, as you mentioned. Um, and instead of exposing scandals um, and focusing on the numerous environmental and social catastrophes that are happening across the fashion supply chain, it focuses on the solutions um, instead. So I wanted to hear more about why you guys chose that approach. And I think it fits well with the agency's tagline, which I got sent, which is, um, we were born out of three people's vision and passion on believing that the communication industry needs more creatives who focus on solving problems rather than creating them. So I wanted to get a bit of insight into why why such an optimistic approach, not to be negative, and why the reverse journey? Yeah, I mean, this is such a, um, a huge question. Um, firstly, optimistic. I think we all need to be a bit more optimistic about what we're doing. Um, and you're exactly right. We need to have creatives that focus on solving problems as opposed to creating them. From Catwalk to Creation's point of view, um, as you rightly say, there's a lot of um, docu- or documentaries out there at the minute that focus on the doom and gloom. And I think we've all had enough of the doom and gloom. You know, it, it, there is a lot of that out there. But it's not the way to actually motivate people and get people to action or take part or want to be a part of something. Um, so we decided to tackle it from a different, um, a different angle mm-hmm. and bring in the actual solution so that people knew once they saw what the problem is or what, once they understood what was happening in the industry they had a way that they could actually um, take action or they had the key takeaways that they could walk away after watching the docuseries for 15 minutes or 17 minutes, depending which one they're watching, um, and actually start to do something that day as opposed to walking away and feeling completely overwhelmed and mm. with, the, with the misery. And there is, let's face it, there is a lot there. There's a lot of, of misery. There's a lot of unhappiness. There's a lot of wrongdoing. But it doesn't have to be that way. So we started with the solution purely so people could feel more upbeat and more positive about being involved. Um, just pause there for a mm-hmm. second. And um, what were the other the questions that you had there? Yeah, the and, why, and why, why reverse? Why reverse, reverse. Mm. And so we did the reverse journey um, because one, well, two reasons. One, because it hadn't been done before, but also two, um, both Ramsey and I come from the advertising industry and you always see that end product. 
And for me, from my background, coming from advertising, fashion and beauty, I was a part of shooting those billboards or shooting those editorials or advertorials that would encourage people to go and buy. So mm -hmm. the aspiration, you know, to go and buy that beautiful dress for that Friday night, that was a part of what I was creating. Um, advertising is well known for selling things to people that people don't need. <laughs> so starting with that and then going behind those scenes of what we were shooting or what I used to shoot in particular, to follow that journey right back to the grassroots of where it came from was a different way of being able to tell that story. So literally pulling those curtains back from where I was working or what I was shooting and then going into that story. Mm. Um, and that was the main reason is to really go behind what I was, um, what I was fueling. Mm. No, that's really interesting to hear about your background and how that that interacts with it. And we've touched on a bit a bit more there about how companies and advertising has been used to get the wrong um, messaging across using multimedia. As you mentioned, advertising is really insidious. Um, and now that we have digital um, digital technologies, so we will have videos playing at train stations, we'll have advertisements even when we're just trying to read the news on our mobile phones even, or or on our computers, and most of it is, as you say, trying to sell us things that we don't necessarily um, need. But obviously there's a flip side to this, and that we are seeing more and more video multimedia being used for good. Um, so what what do you think is the role of multimedia in solving something as complex as sustainable fashion so this is an industry that's contributing not just to waste which is probably the most visual aspect of the problem I suppose but also to deforestation rising carbon emissions chemical pollution water human rights abuses so you mentioned as well the the um, the mass of information that's out there and how complicated it can be to navigate but what role do you see video and multimedia playing in going over that barrier in the future? I think there's a massive role for multimedia in the industry um, particularly in raising awareness uh, for consumers. Um, from our side or from my side it's really important for me um, for Do Epic Shit and for Do Epic Good. No hang on sorry. It's really important from the Do Epic Good side that we partner with brands and companies who are really using their um, position of power as a force for good. So the content that we create for those brands, whether that be in the fashion space right across through to um, automotive, aviation, um, telecommunications, sports, where it, it's endless, all brands and companies have a responsibility to stand up and speak about what they believe in. And our role as content creators is to actually use that um, vehicle or that medium as a, as a vehicle for positive change and that's where I believe the future is and that's where I believe that brands need to be need to be um, brave enough to actually stand up and do that. Mm. No we meet actually in, at ED a lot of people who started in a communications or advertising space and moved across or they're responsible both for sustainability and communications um, at their company so that's an yeah that's something I'm seeing a lot of. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then just to finish off, I guess it poses the question of what is what is next for you? For you, what's your next big? Um, what are your what are your um, next big projects on? So, Catwalk to Creation Part One and Part Two was really a pilot um, series to actually see how much traction we we got, and it has got incredible traction. Um, we've screened it at the United Nations General Assembly. 
Um, we've had Vogue Arabia screenings. We've done screenings in New York, London, um, Berlin, up, coming up is uh, Munich, all around the world. We're mm -hmm. actually um, also partnered with Fashion Revolution in Fashion Revolution Week this year and now in 60 countries. Um, we're also partners with GFX, which is Global Fashion Exchange. Mm -hmm. So whenever you do a Global Fashion Exchange, exchange around the world, um, you can download the toolkit as well, and we're a part of that toolkit, again, in 60 countries. So the amount of traction and interest that has actually come from this has been incredible, and people are really interested in this. And what was actually one of our key, um, timely, um, unknowingly at the time key uh, um, bridges was that Sir David Attenborough actually when he launched um, Blue Planet 2 mm -hmm. there was a big conversation around plastics and globally people sat up and listened to this and what the most one of the most interesting things are is that well, one of the most interesting things is is that the fashion industry is responsible for a third of that plastic problem and a lot of people don't know about that so bridging that topic across into the fashion industry and making people more aware of what they're actually buying or purchasing or buying into um, has been really key now we've only just started with conversations on, on part one and part two and we're on the environmental side and as we rightly talked about before as well, there are so many different conversations to come into this. You know, the chemical use, um, water resources, um, you know, and then we go into human rights and it just, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. But it's not just set to fashion. It's in beauty, it's in footwear or accessories. It's across the board into other areas in food. Um, for me, it is, it, the future is knowing exactly where everything comes from um, and through content. So if I go up to swing tags or if I go up to, um, you know, go on a website, I want to know exactly who has made my clothes, like a fashion revolution would say, or I want to know who's made my food or where it's come from. Mm -hmm. um, all of those conversations. And it's starting to happen definitely in the food industry. Um, but in the fashion industry, it's just slowly picking up now. So for me, part three and part four, which I'm working on at the moment, or for me, part three and part four, which we're working on at the minute, um, I can't give too much away at the moment, but there is a part three and part four coming out, um, and we're, we're um, uh, in the process of producing that at the moment. Um, but the conversation won't stop there, because there's so many different topics that we're going to be able to talk about and that people want to know about. I've had people come up to me and, to, and ask, you know, when are you going to start talking about one topic or this topic or another? So there's actually interest and people now seeing that they don't have to go and do that research themselves, that they can just tap into these little bite-sized, as I was saying before, these mm. little um, pots of information to find out what's going on. One thing I always say, though, is um, don't take catwalk just as gospel. Take it as the start of your learning and then go and take the initiative to actually keep on learning and find out more information because it's not just one level down or two levels down. There's so many different layers down. You know, you could go 10, 15 levels deep and you still don't know all the information mm. and you're still finding things. Um, during the course of when I was actually filming Catwalk, I got to a point where I, um, where I, I actually stopped shopping and I could not bring myself to buy anything. I would walk into shops, I would look around and I'd walk straight back out. I'd walk down high streets and all I'd see people was wearing plastic. I would be frozen or paralyzed because of the information that I knew. And it took me quite a while to actually come back around and then start going, okay, mm. I know where I'm gonna shop, I know what I'm gonna do. I know um, if I make this purchase, I know the consequence. Um, if, I, you know, if I buy somewhere else, I know, the, you know, I know everything that's happening. Um, hang on. If I if I buy somewhere else, um, I know the good that I'm doing. 
um, and, and those sort of things. So it was a real learning curve for me, um, and certainly the people who have been involved in the process um, in the project as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting um, uh, process to go through, mm-hmm. I think, for anyone. No, I can imagine it's the same with with me since starting at this job. But sadly, the ingredients of shower gel or the plastic content of your jacket don't make the best pub conversation and then you start feeling <laughs> and then you start feeling anxious as to whether you're odd for being the only one apparently that knows about this absolutely as, no you're not well. odd at all um but there we go what better way to end it than on a message of stay curious and keep learning but thank you so much for coming to join us today oh it's been my pleasure thank you very much for having me um and we're looking forward to watching part three and four can't wait to uh, share it So for the final part of ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, we're going to be focusing on those big, hairy SDGs. I'm sure you're all well-versed in the reported action gap between companies that have committed to combating and contributing to the SDGs and those that are actually acting on them. So I'm hoping this final interview will offer some valuable insight and advice for those that are still struggling to get to grips with the global goals. We're going back over to Sarah, who recently sat down with Relix's Marcia Balciano, the Director of Corporate Responsibility at the company. During this chat, Sarah and Marcia discuss how the company is using science to create a leading-edge approach to SDG engagement. So here is that chat in full. Enjoy. Okay, great. Well, as we have mentioned, it is a rainy Thursday here in London, unfortunately, but we are cosied up in the office of Marcia Balciano who is leading corporate sustainability at Relex and has done since 2003. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, despite the rain. (laughs) Nice to be talking to you. Yeah, great. Um, And when we first got the email from you guys, it was pretty obvious what the topic was. The the terms SDGs, um, Ban Ki-moon, UN Global Compact really jumped off the page um, for me. So I was wondering if you could just um, give a little bit of background into that and how you've helped the company align with the SDGs. Um, well, Relics is an information and analytics company and an events company. Uh, we're across four business areas relating to um, science, law, business to business, um, and indeed events. We have over 500 events, so you can name a sector and we will have a show um, in one area or another. And because of the breadth of what we do, we're kind of like the world's knowledge company. And we began thinking about the role that we should play when there was talk about something to replace the Millennium Development Goals. Mm. So the MDGs were eight goals that were launched to coincide with the new millennium in uh, the year 2000 under Kofi Annan, who was then Secretary General. Um, And that was good, and there was a lot of progress that was made in in areas uh, around poverty. But um, then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon began thinking what was going to replace the MDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals were born. And what I think is important about the SDGs, and of course 193 nations, um, all of the nations of the UN, which it may be difficult for them to agree on many things, unanimously adopted the SDGs in September 2015. 
they are not just meant for the least developed countries of the world. It's meant for all countries. Mm -hmm. And so there is um, there is a role to be played and um, an expectation that uh, countries, including in the United Kingdom where we are based and we operate around the world, uh, need to be doing their part to achieve this kind of to-do list, if you will, for the world by 2030. So in terms of how we began our journey on doing our part on the SDGs, we began thinking about science and the underpinning of the SDGs. How ready was science to help and inform knowledge and debate on the SDGs? So we actually, um, on that day in September 2015, we're at one UN plaza and we released a free report um, which you can find on the Relics SDG Resource Center which I'm going to tell you about uh, called Sustainability Science in a Global Landscape. So we didn't have a lot of information about the SDGs but we kind of grouped them around dignity, people, prosperity, planet, justice, partnerships and we looked at how developed countries were, where were the gaps, how much cooperation was there, particularly among the global north and the global south. And what we saw um, by doing this piece of research is that there was a lot of good work that was happening, but there was so much more that needed to be done, and particularly around supporting uh, original research um, in the global south. So. So this report um, that I'm mentioning was launched by the editor of The Lancet, which is one of our journals, uh, through Elsevier. Uh, And he was giving that talk, and I was sitting in the audience listening um, to to the findings of this research report, which so many of us had contributed to, thinking, okay, this is great, but what are we going to do beyond this? And um, as we began talking with our colleagues, we realized that there was content that we had that relates to the 17 SDGs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it might be a journal article, it could be a book chapter, it might be a show, um, it might be a tool, it might be a podcast ourselves, or um, there's something that we have that will help to give knowledge about the SDGs. And so out of that thinking came in uh, 2017 the launch of the Relex SDG Resource Center. Mm -hmm. It's a free resource for the world and it is um, leading edge news and information on the SDGs. And in fact, our colleagues at LexisNexis Legal and Professional uh, which is one of those four business areas of the company, they developed a news tracker. You can find that on the homepage. And so you can search by SDG and you can get um, up to the minute news and over the last 30 days for the SDG um, in all the UN languages. So maybe the uh, news feature that will come up may not be in English, but uh, it will be relevant to the SDGs. Mm. Um, and obviously you guys are very well placed in the areas that you operate in to share that information and spur progress across, as you say, so many different sectors. But how has it worked on an internal basis? Is that something you guys have been looking at as well? 
Yes, so um, while we think about how we can continue to build out the resource center, and at the moment there's about 700 content sources on the site. It's predominantly from RELICS, but we also have partner content from within the UN system, so UN Global Compact, mm -hmm. to which RELICS is a signatory, the kind of business arm of the UN, uh, UN Development Program, UN Environment Program, and our goal this year is to get to a thousand content sources on the site. But we also set objectives, corporate responsibility objectives as we call them. We put them in the public domain. You can find them on relax.com uh, in the corporate responsibility section. And uh, we start with our unique contributions as a business. So um, we're setting objectives for the full range of extra financial performance areas, so governance, people, mm -hmm. uh, health and safety, uh, supply chain, environment, but we start with our unique contributions. So what we have done is a lot of soul searching. What is different about Relics from our peers and from other companies in terms of the contribution that given the makeup of our business, we can maximize in terms of uh, having a positive benefit to society. So we articulate that as universal sustainable access to information, promoting science and improving health outcomes, promoting the rule of law and access to justice, protecting society and fostering communities, which roughly map to those four business areas. So within our unique contributions, we are connecting that with specific SDGs. So for example, last year we had an objective uh, which was advance uh, science and health um, and make publicly available research on the state of science underpinning the SDGs. Mm -hmm. So an output from that was uh, uh, the next iteration of our Relex SDG graphics. So we are drilling down into the individual SDGs. We're looking at countries and the output that they have. We're looking at how good that information is based on, for example, um, the impact that it has, how often that research is cited by other researchers as a kind of proxy for quality. We're looking at how collaborative is the research. Uh, so we are, we are looking at uh, individual SDGs like SDG uh, 3 on good health and well-being. And one of our objectives this year is around um, the Elsevier Foundation, which is a nonprofit that is affiliated with our Elsevier business. Uh, and they are working with women in water in Africa on leadership workshops. We really want to take that and develop them further. So it's an example of something that's very specific to our business mm. in addition to the work with the Resource Centre, which is more broad. Mm. And that presumably covers clean water and sanitation and gender equality, so two SDGs. Yes, it does. At least. Um, and then when I was giving the briefing as well, I was given access to your notes from the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I was told that you gave a, a speech there about the importance of having women leaders to drive the SDGs. And you spoke there a bit about how they can directly help women in developing nations, how women can be the ones that are acted upon, but what about having women in the driving seat, such yes. as yourself, on the SDGs? Well, I think, um, I think we, need, we need women leaders a a across the board um, in all 
aspects of society and including business. Uh, when we know, for example, with studies that McKinsey has done um, on their um, uh, When Women Thrive research, that when you have three or more women in leadership in an organization, performance metrics improve. You need women who, as leaders, can also help to think about the impact that their business has on the SDGs. If we want to achieve this very ambitious agenda by 2030, it cannot be business as usual. We all can think about the work that we do every day and its impact on the SDGs, but we've got to ratchet it up. We need to do more. So how are we going to scale? And women need to be part of that conversation. And when I look at the statistics, for example, within UN Women, and Relax is a signatory to the Women's Empowerment Principles, and if any of your listeners don't know about the WEPS, it's really a wonderful tool. It's a combination uh, effort by UN Women and mm -hmm. also the UN Global compact and there are a set of principles and some really great free tools for benchmarking what good looks like in terms of women um, in the organization and also women in leadership. But um, the statistics are really you know, uh, quite shocking. Um, women on average globally earn 77% of what men earn. Um, and they're faced with a motherhood wage penalty, which increases for every child that they have. Um, we know that women can impact, obviously, uh, goal five of the SDGs, which is around women's um, equality. But there's also goal eight in terms of full and productive employment and decent mm. work for all. And also, uh, if we get this right, improving on, on goal 10 in terms of reducing uh, inequality and the upside is tremendous. Uh, increasing female employment in just OECD countries could boost GDP, according to the UN, by uh, six trillion dollars. So it's it really will matter. Mm. No, I like how you summed it up there that the SDG agenda is about this beyond business as usual, um, and it's a framework that we're seeing more and more. Um, companies use. So would you say that you think this is what the future of sustainability leadership um, would would look like? I mean, we're getting headlines now about reaching net zero and decarbonisation, but then also um, a lot of calls for this to be a just transition and that it takes into account all of the economic and social factors accounted for by frameworks um, such as such as the SDGs. So where do you see it going from now? I see more and more integration. Um, for example, earlier this year, PIMCO, uh, the financial services firm, launched an SDG bond. Mm -hmm. The SDGs are a great framework for activity, again, across from government to the private sector, from civil society. There is a role to be played by um, all actors in society, and I see for business it's a really great way to look at what you do and how that can align with the SDGs. This matters to a, a range of a business's stakeholders. We know that especially young people want to come to work for good companies, so it matters in terms of our prospective workforce. And, and particularly in our business, we employ nearly a third 
of um, our workforce as technology specialists. So right. it's a war for talent. We want them to come to work for Relics because we are making a positive contribution on society and that we're looking to increase that and they can play a role in that. It also, we know, matters to government, as you mentioned, um, some very exciting news um, this particular week of June with um, uh, Prime Minister announcing that you know, the UK will be doing more to exercise its leadership, maybe be the first um, country in the world to set such ambitious targets for uh, net zero emissions, but we do indeed, as you say, need to look across the, the full spectrum in terms of the engagement that we have with NGOs and how they can help us by showing us what good practice looks like from their perspective in their engagement with other mm -hmm. businesses. Um, and I think also in terms of uh, looking at the investors, you know, I've been having more and more conversations with investors where it's not just the socially responsible investment community, it's the mainstream analysts who see this as a, a risk-based approach, mm. but that it, they're looking for companies for us to articulate the upside and the opportunities that it provides for business growth. And I think this agenda provides that opportunity to have those kinds of conversations and also conversations with our customers because we can say, yes, we're a good company and our products are good and they're well-priced, but we know that our customers are concerned about these issues. They're under the same pressures that we are. So there might be opportunities for us to collaborate and we can showcase how, you know, the work that they're doing on the SDGs, how we can contribute to that. Well, there you have it. I think that communication and collaboration is an excellent note to end the segment on. But thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. What a fascinating look at the SDGs from both Marcia and Relix there. Uh, the global goals are daunting and the deadlines aren't too far away, but as companies like Relix are proving, mobilising action can help leave the planet healthier and invigorated. Speaking of healthy and invigorated, I am now going for a well-earned lie-down, which means that this episode has come to an end. A reminder that all these episodes can be listened to via the ED website or downloaded via iTunes and Spotify. We'll actually be back next week for a special episode where we attempt our second ever Great Podcast Relay. Myself, Sarah and James will be attending various events for London Climate Action Week, so the next episode will feature snippets of our chats with key industry figures from the week-long event. So that's something for you to look forward to next week. But until next time, it's goodbye.